So in many ways, he's prophesying about what is to come, and he's letting people know that this is a new standard. He foresaw, obviously, the persecution, and that Christians would be driven out of their families, that they would come together to form new families, and that those people have a family bond that's thicker than just blood, that it was bought with his blood. We need to do away with these arbitrary cultural divisions, these arbitrary cultural boundaries, this sort of random cultural caste system that's set up to keep people separate. It's very different now because in Jesus, all of those divisions have been done away with. All of those separations have been done away with. You are all now part of one family. And so whether you're a Jew and you were born into it, or whether you're a Greek and you were grafted in, whether you're a slave and you have no money and no social status, or whether you're a free person who owns, you know, all these slaves, it doesn't matter, male or female, which was a radical statement back then, it doesn't matter. We're all part of one big family in Christ Jesus. All right, so by a show of hands, how many of you will admit that you still watch network television? Okay, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. Anybody still watch network television? Let me see your hands. Like, hi, you're, you're okay. You don't, you know, you're like, forget about Netflix, forget about Amazon Prime, forget about Hulu. I'm on just network, straight network. Few people, right? So. It's in massive decline, but I'm still old enough, or I'm old enough to still remember, I should say, when network television was really all that you had. So when Carrie and I were were first married, uh, we didn't have cable, so we were stuck with network television, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. What that ended up being, for the most part, was us watching endless reruns of Seinfeld and King of Queens. So, because on Fox, like, that's what they showed all the time when we were able to watch TV. But growing up, I still remember, too, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, they had their shows, and there was a lot of competition going on, and, you know, it was a big deal. Most shows at that time, when I remember growing up, were either sitcoms or some kind of intense drama, right? Like Law and Order, you know, something like that was going on. L.A. Law, if you're a little bit older. Uh, Magnum P.I., you know, the A-Team, some really good stuff. Or you had like your sitcoms, like we talked about this about a month ago, TGIF. But it was appointment television because if you missed an episode, there was no way to, 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 you just didn't know what was going on. Now, some of these shows had no linear storyline whatsoever. It was just episode to episode, but you still were like, I got to be home by this time to watch this, or I'm not going to be able to see it, or you could maybe try to figure out how to program your VCR to record it, which seemed impossible to me, but you could maybe do that, but it just wasn't the same because then all your friends would have already seen it, and then they're going to ruin it for you. So anyway, but I also, I remember very distinctly, and this was because it was when Carrie and I were dating and when we were first married, I remember distinctly when you know, the content of network television, because this was still before any streaming services existed, and people had cable for sure, but the networks were still dominant. And I remember when the content shifted. It shifted away primarily from sitcoms and dramas to two completely different things. It shifted to uh, CSI, like everything CSI, right? CSI Miami, CSI Las Vegas, CSI whatever, you name it, right? Um, And so all CSI crime scene shows or the bigger, more dominant thing was reality shows. Thank you, whoever said that. So reality shows. Now, I don't know 
for sure. I didn't do any research on this. I'm just going by memory, but I don't know for sure what the first reality show was. I think it might have been Survivor. Like that was the first, which I just learned recently is still, it's still on. Like that's still a thing, I, which blew my mind. Um, but Survivor, um, I remember that one being a big deal and like people were like hooked and they couldn't, didn't matter what was going on in their world, what was going on in their life, whatever time that show was on, like I gotta be there to, to watch that. And then there were some other ones. Uh, one that I liked a lot back then was Fear Factor. If you remember that one with Joe Rogan, that one was crazy. Um, and then we had all, other, all these other ones, and I've just got a few that I wrote down. Uh, Amazing Race, you remember that one? I never watched that one, but, uh, you know. Then there was, um, uh, yeah, let's see what else we got. There was The Bachelorette and The Bachelor. That's a, that's a hard pass on that one. Um, the Voice came on later, right? America's Got Talent. Uh, there was Dancing with the Stars, which is still on, I think. But the big one, you know, the one that I will admit shamefully uh, that I got into when Karen and I were first married uh, was American Idol, right? And is that still on, yes or no? That's, that's still, the voice I know is still going, but American Idol, I'm not sure. But I remember, and I mean, we need to strike this in the podcast because I don't want there to be any evidence that I watched this show out there, but... Like, I remember I was coaching football at the time for the first couple of years, Carrie and I were married, and I would make sure I got home from practice, get dinner, and sit down and watch American Idol. I couldn't miss it, you know? This was like uh, the year where it was Clay Aiken and, and Ruben. Remember that? Remember that? Man, those guys have done well. Oh, anyway, so, um, so I remember that and, like, having to lock in. But, you know, the most entertaining part of it was probably the auditions where they'd have the people that thought they could sing, uh, but clearly couldn't sing. Anybody remember William Hung? The, yes, like everybody knows that name. It's like iconic, right? It's like something that nobody, nobody outside of the United States would have any clue who that dude is. But you ask anybody our age, my age range, I'm almost 44, everybody knows who that guy is, right? So, watched American Idol. That was the only one I really watched, with the exception of one season of one other reality show. Now, we also learned, and we still know this for the most part, they're not reality, right? Everything is manipulated. Everything is twisted around. Everything is sort of just, you know, it's all, there's not reality. There's all kinds of setups and things like that. Big Brother was another one, too. If any Big Brother shout-outs. Apparently, you have some Big Brother fans. So, um, so there was one other season of one other show that I watched intently and intensely and was excited about, and that was the Celebrity Apprentice. Now, you remember, obviously, The Apprentice, because that dude ended up being our president somehow, but he, he was, you know, that was it. The dude who said, you're fired, you know, that he had a pretty swift career trajectory. It, it landed him high, apparently. So, but they switched it eventually from, like, your normal people, whatever that was, to The Celebrity Apprentice. And this one season, I watched The Celebrity Apprentice for one reason only. Not Donald Trump. One reason only. Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman. So I grew up, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s is when I was really getting into sports and becoming obsessed with, you know, watching them and learning all about these guys. And for basketball, I mean, I loved basketball. And so I had a favorite player for a long time, which was Allen Iverson. And so he was my favorite. But besides Allen Iverson, and maybe eventually took him over, Dennis Rodman, like, took over 
you know, in terms of my favorite player. It's when he was with the Bulls, and the Bulls were everywhere. They were iconic. They were the most dominant team probably in history. And Jordan was popular, there's no doubt. But I think Rodman at the time might have been more popular. Now, I liked him because he was a rebel, right? He was tatted up. He was pierced. He dyed his hair different colors. He didn't conform. He just did basically whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, but he still dominated. And that's why I liked him, because he was doing things his own way. I remember my, after my graduation open house, I had some money, you know, and I immediately went out, went out and the first purchase I made was Dennis Rodman's book, <laughs> Bad As I Want to Be. I never read that book, by the way. Do not read it. I was not a Christian at the time. Do not read that book. So I went and bought that, you know, and, and I was like, oh, I love this guy. And so I watched, I was excited to see. And so he was on there, and there was another guy on there too, who they ended up kind of becoming friends, but then the relationship grew a little tenuous and started having some tension. And that was a guy named Diamond Dallas Page. Anybody remember this guy, right, right? Diamond Dallas Page, DDP, the DDP stunner, DDP yoga. Some of you I know have done DDP yoga. And so, but Diamond Dallas Page was a you know, retired professional wrestler from the WWE. And turns out, Diamond Dallas Page is a pretty good dude. And it turns out, Dennis Rodman's not. And so, they, and so, a shocker, I know, guys. Revelatory information this morning, right? Right off the bat, revelatory. You're like, oh, man, my, my whole world shattered. And so, and so, Rodman was being Rodman during the show, which meant staying out all hours of the night, doing drugs, drinking way too much wreaking havoc, and a lot of the people were just like, Dennis is, you know, a piece of garbage. Dennis is this. But Diamond Dallas Page was, like, trying to help him. He was, like, coming alongside of him, right? And he was like, Dennis, man, you're messing up your life. Dennis, man, I, you know, I really think you should think about this. And Dennis was like, get away from me because he's a rebel. You know, I'm going to do what I want. And so they had, um, the show goes on, and I don't even remember who won it, to be honest, but um, maybe it was like Trace Adkins, remember that guy? But anyway, they, they go and, and, some, and they have this, the reunion, the afterwards, right? And because of the relationship deterioration throughout the show between Diamond Dallas Page and Dennis Rodman, they hadn't spoken in a while. In fact, when they had the Celebrity Apprentice reunion, the way they had them seated, they were like in a tiered seating, is DDP was like way over here and Dennis Rodman was way down here. So they put them as far away from each other as they could. They're kind of both alpha males, you know, and so they were probably worried something was going to happen. And so they started getting into certain parts of the show and how Dennis Rodman had really, you know, worked hard to self-destruct and do all these things and how Diamond Dallas Page had tried to help him. And they start getting into that. And Dennis just starts, you know, being not a good dude and just going off on, you know, Diamond Dallas Page and saying all these things about him. And Diamond Dallas Page, if you can actually, I think, go on YouTube and find this. I didn't do this this week, but Diamond Dallas Page actually gets like tears in his eyes. And he actually says to Dennis Rodman, Dennis, if you had a brain in your head, you would realize that I love you and that I'm doing all this stuff because I love you. Like, I'm not trying to control you, to manipulate you, to do all these things. I just, I love you, brother, and I don't want to see you self-destruct, right? It's pretty powerful stuff. If you've never seen the movie The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, like, you should see that. It's one of the best movies you'll ever see about discipleship and what it looks like to actually disciple somebody. If you know Jake the Snake Roberts was a wrestler, 
the 80s who had taken a path similar to Rodman's and Diamond Dallas Page, takes him and brings him under his wing and just like goes after it. So you had this crazy relationship where Rodman's like, ah, I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm not gonna do anything you say. And, and Diamond Dallas Page still is like, brother, I'm sticking by you. I love you. This is for your own good. So we're in a series. You guys know I do this. This is the thing. We, some week, I threatened last week to a bunch of you. I'm like, I'm not gonna bring story back around sometime. I'm just gonna leave it hanging. And then I'll be like, you didn't get it? You didn't get where I brought it back around? So anyway, it'll come back around. But we're in a series right now called The Good Fight. And this is a series where we're going pretty much verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter, an epistle from Paul to his young apprentice, Timothy, basically about how to lead a church, how to lead a church effectively uh, in light of a lot of things they were dealing with culturally, a lot of difficulties, and a lot of people becoming Christians, but having all kinds of pagan backgrounds, all kinds of other stuff going on, and they're trying to navigate that in what was a really incredibly new experience. The church is still very, very young, and so we've been talking about that this summer. Today, we're actually in chapter 5. We're kicking off chapter 5. We've just got a few weeks left in this, so I want to read um, the first 10 verses because that's the chunk that uh, I'm going to be talking about today. For, so 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bible, you can break that out. If you have a Bible app, feel free to, to click on that. I'm actually doing something a little different today. I'm going to read from the message version, and I'll explain why a little bit later. Uh, so this is what Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, Don't be harsh or impatient with an older man. Talk to him as you would your own father, and to the younger men as your brothers. Reverently honor an older woman as you would your mother, and the younger women as sisters. Take care of widows who are destitute. If a widow has family members to take care of her, let them learn that religion begins at their own doorstep. It's a great line. And that they should pay back with gratitude some of what they have received. This pleases God immensely. You can tell a legitimate widow by the way she has put all her hope in God, praying to him constantly for the needs of others as well as her own. But a widow who exploits people's emotions and pocketbooks, well, there's nothing to her. Tell these things to the people so that they will do the right thing in their extended family. Anyone who neglects to care for family members in need repudiates the faith. Repudiates, if you don't know what that word means, to reject, to deny, to basically stand against. Repudiates the faith. That's worse than refusing to believe in the first place. Strong language. Sign some widows up for the special ministry of offering assistance. They will in turn receive support from the church. They must be over 60, married only once, and have a reputation for helping out with children, strangers, tired Christians, the hurt, and the troubled. Okay, now, just up front, let me say, if I was given the choice, I probably would not have selected this passage to preach on. Well, why is that? Because when you read this passage in isolation, as we're doing this morning, so we're looking at just these 10 verses, this text seems incredibly straightforward and not necessarily worth teaching on beyond kind of a cursory explanation. It's like, okay, you should be kind to older men and older women, and you should also be kind to everybody else. Okay, got it? Good. Also, here are some rules for, you know, taking care of widows. Got it? Okay, good. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot else there. But that simple fact like, reveals this problem that we often have with reading certain texts, or most texts for that matter, in isolation. So we'll take a chunk, 
we'll read it, 10 verses, and then we're trying to extract meaning from it just purely in isolation. The reason we tend to do this, and I've talked about this some before, has a lot to do, or maybe mostly to do, with chapter and verse divisions, none of which existed when this letter or any other biblical text, for that matter, uh, was written. Chapter and verse divisions are later inventions, right? None of you here have ever written an email, have ever written a letter to anybody, whether it's handwritten or otherwise, and you've broken it up into chapters and verses, right? You've never done that. It's weird if you did that. And Paul didn't do it either. Peter didn't do it either. John didn't do it either. None of the gospel writers did that. This was a later invention, right? So, and it can be, it can be helpful. And I understand that it can be helpful for lots of reasons, for referencing different things, you know, for cool refrigerator magnets, stuff like that. Like, it can be helpful. Um, and so, but it also can be problematic. But reading this passage, again, as though it were singular in nature, doesn't, do much for us. It really just doesn't. It's okay to say that. But to remedy that, we need to zoom out and look at the bigger picture, which we're going to do for the next 20 minutes or so. Because the reality is that these 10 verses, quote unquote, again, there weren't originally verses, but this chunk right here, when we look at these, there's a key question to help us learn what point Paul is making here beyond the glaringly obvious ones, right? Be kind and take care of these widows. But what point is he making here? Is there something deeper? And there is. But we have to zoom out to really get an accurate picture, right? The question that I'm talking about, the most important question is not, what do we do with widows? That's not the most important question, even though on surface level, in isolation, it would seem like that because most of this passage, 90% of it, is about taking care of widows. So if the question that's important here is not what do we do with widows, what is the question? So I'm going to give it to you, and it's on the screen. The most important question that we have to ask as we try to extract meaning from this text and understand what's going on here is, why did Paul move? really seamlessly, because again, there were no chapter and verse divisions. Why does he move seamlessly from the commands to teach and apply truth to addressing how we speak to one another and the criteria for serving widows? Why did he do that? Think about it. Doesn't that seem like a bit of a strange way to follow up chapter four, which Emily and I have preached on the past couple weeks and I closed out last week? If you remember chapter four, is all about like contending. Emily preached on contending, right, for truth, right? Contending with others, contending for godliness, contending for holiness. And then last week, I talked about the things that Paul instructs Timothy to really focus on and give himself wholly over to and to be absorbed in, right? Speech and conduct and purity and faith and love. So there's this really, really deep, heavy-hitting, intense stuff that Paul's instructing Timothy that you need to focus on. Hence the name of the series, Fight the Good Fight, because there's a level of intensity to it. And Paul reiterates this over and over again. So why, coming off of this really intense, tense thing, does he suddenly seem to shift gears and go into, you know, oh, by the way, be kind and take care of widows. It seems a little bit, a little bit odd, but it's actually not odd when this passage is considered in light and in scope of Paul's entire letter to Timothy, and more importantly almost, when it's considered with what we know about the early church. So let me just talk about the early church for a second. 
We understand, and you've probably heard us talk here about how the church was effectively born. 120 followers of Jesus that remained after his crucifixion and resurrection. Day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes and the church blows up exponentially. And then it says the people are being added to their number on a daily basis. So the church all of a sudden explodes with this growth. As it explodes, it becomes, in some ways, it's a beautiful thing, first of all, but in some ways it becomes difficult to manage because you've got all kinds of people coming from all different backgrounds, and this is a brand new thing. We have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian history, so we take it for granted, but they were stepping into it for the first time. Wait a second, you mean this guy, this Jewish carpenter, this rabbi who was killed by the Romans, you're saying he's the Messiah, he's the hope of the world, he's the long-awaited one who's going to deliver all of us? Well, oh my gosh, what does that look like? And then you had people who were Jews understanding that somewhat, but then you have the introduction of Gentiles who had pagan religion and all kinds of crazy background, and they're accepting Jesus, but they're like trying to figure out what does that look like in light of the rest of the stuff we've practiced our entire life, and so it was just a little bit crazy on that level. But then you have other levels, which was that the church was still undergoing at that time and did for 300 plus years, pretty intense persecution. Now there were seasons where this was a little bit less and there were places where this was a little bit less, but by and large, the Roman empire was the dominant empire of the day. They didn't like Christianity. They didn't like Christians. And so there was persecution. And because of that, right, there were no buildings like this where churches met. None, they did not exist. Those did not come into being until post-Constantine, post-300, right? When Christianity became the official state religion and then churches were allowed to gather in places like this. So what they did was they met in homes, they met in secret, they met wherever they could and around most parts of the world to, as of this morning, that's still happening, right? This is one of the only places where we have the freedom like this to gather. But they didn't have that option, so they're meeting in houses. Well, if you know how their houses were set up, they didn't hold a lot of people. They weren't very big. And so we know from Christian history that the average church at that time, they were all basically little house churches, and they were about 30 people. And so when Paul is writing in a letter, let's say, now let's not talk about Timothy, but let's talk about some of the other epistles. When he's writing a letter to the Galatians, to the Philippians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, right? Those were cities, those were cities. He's writing letters to the city, to the church of that city. And it, the, intense, the intent, excuse me, of it was that it would be passed around. It was a circular letter. So it would somehow get into somebody's hands who was leading a church. They would read it. They would maybe either write it down or they would do their best to memorize it because they weren't super long. And they would do that. Then they'd pass it along to another house church leader. Then they'd pass it along to another house church leader. And it would get around like that. And that's kind of how it worked. So can you imagine, because we don't think about things, you know, in these terms, but can you imagine, right? Last I checked, there were 350-some-odd churches in Des Moines, right? That's a lot of churches, 350-some-odd churches. But can you imagine if somebody was like, to a letter, and this is a letter to the church of Des Moines. And we're all like, church of Des Moines, like, whatever. I don't even like those 294 places, you know, like, how, how, how are we associated with them, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's all these dis divisions now and stuff like that, but back then it was, no, the church of a city, and they all had these little house churches, so it's vastly different in terms of how we would think about the church, okay? The other thing uh, that was going on is that Christianity, because it had been really vilified by the Roman Empire, because there was persecution, and because people were deeply entrenched in either Judaism or other religions at the time, when people became Christians, oftentimes they lost their family, right? They were 
basically disowned. They were kicked out. And this still happens again all over the world to this day. It's happening this morning. When people convert to Christianity, their families say, we're done with you. You have a chance. You can recant, recant. You can deny Jesus, and we'll bring you back in, or you're out, right? But back then, the family unit, the, the blood and flesh family unit that you were born into was your lifeblood. It was your source of survival. Most people grew up, and they apprenticed what their father did, or they apprenticed what their grandfather did, and it was generational. And so the family business, so to speak, and that's how you, you all lived together, and you shared all these things. And so for you to be cast out from that, suddenly you're an outcast. Suddenly you're ostracized. Suddenly you don't have a way to make a living. Suddenly you don't know where to turn, Right? But the church, these house churches, were taking each other in. So you might have, again, 30 people in a house church, but you might have a couple in a certain area. And they're all in the same boat, or a lot of them are in the same boat, where they've all been, right, disowned. They've all been ostracized. They've all been told and had their livelihood taken from them. So they are coming together to love and support each other, and it's coming together in a very different way. Right. Got all that? Okay. You got all that. So think about these realities, all that stuff I just said, and there's so much more I could talk about uh, that I don't have time for this morning, but ponder those realities in conjunction with what Paul talks about here at the beginning of chapter five. Paul tells Timothy to look at older men as he would look at his own father. What he's implying there, that is if Timothy sees every older man in the church as a father, they'll treat them with respect. He also tells Timothy to view younger men as though they were his, what? His brothers. Paul tells Timothy to view the older women as mothers, and he tells them to view younger women as sisters, right? What is Paul doing here? Like, what is Paul doing here? He says, do not rebuke an older man. Do not treat an older man harshly. He's not saying, because we know that in other letters of his and throughout the New Testament, this is an important thing. He's not saying, right, that those who are wrong, that those who are going astray when it comes to orthodoxy, when those who are being, giving over to false teachings or those who are, you know, starting to, like, struggle morally and all those things, he's not saying that you shouldn't talk to those people, that you shouldn't try to correct them, that you shouldn't try to bring them back into the fold, that, you know, you shouldn't do that. We know that was an incredibly important thing. We know that correction and accountability are incredibly important aspects of the Christian life. Right? That was true then. And it's true now. Instead, what Paul's doing is he's instructing Timothy regarding Timothy's heart posture. The heart posture Timothy should have when he considers the congregation that God has called him to shepherd. And even more so, when he does, in fact, need to administer a bit of correction or a bit of discipline. He's not saying you don't do this over and over repeatedly, even in 1 Timothy. He tells them many times to correct those who are in error, to make sure people don't shipwreck their faith, to contend for truth, to do all these things. So he's not, you know, basically contradicting himself within a matter of just a few chapters. So we have to look deeper. What is he doing, right? He's talking about Timothy's heart posture when these things have to come along. The word that he uses in the NIV translation, which I didn't have on the screen, it says, do not rebuke an older man. If you look up that word rebuke in the Greek, what it actually means is to strike forcefully. It literally basically means to like punch somebody right in the nose, like just absolute whack, like big time, right? So Paul's not saying not to correct people, not to instruct them, not to teach them, not to help them stay on the straight and narrow. He's saying when you do it, 
Think about them as your father. Think about them as your mother. Think about them as your brother and your sister and how you should treat them. For some of you, that's not a good example, but you get the idea of it, right? And so the ideal situation, he's like, when you do that, it's not about just going at them and punching them right in the nose and just like blasting them. That's not going to do any good. Be gentle with them. Have your heart in the right place when you do that. So here's a, here's a key thing. It's not on the screen, but Paul invokes familial language to clarify for Timothy what should be loving, respectful, sacrificial, healthy relationships that help point each other towards Jesus. In other words, anyone who is diligently loving and serving Jesus should be treated as the family that they are. Now, here's where we really are going to get to the crux of this for this last 10 minutes. Truth, I have us on the screen. This is a big thing. Something that we don't often talk about that we probably should talk about more. Uh, truth. The church is not just a family, right? Yeah, the church is a family. No, the church is not just a family. It is your family. It is the family. It's the family. The church is the community of God. And that community is thicker than natural blood because it was born from the supernatural blood of Jesus. I want you to take that in for a second. The church is not just a family. It is your family. It is the family, singular, right? And I'm going to explain this more in depth as we, as we get to the end here. Jesus taught this. This is not a Josh Goodman thing. This is something Jesus taught. Right? He taught this when he spoke about his followers as his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. In Matthew 12, 46 through 50, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, so he's ministering to people, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the person, the messenger that told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he's not being like weirdly philosophical here, right? He's being straightforward. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and, and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is something that's overlooked so often. But in these few short verses, Jesus is flipping the traditional family dynamic on its head. Now, by no means is he eradicating it or doing away with it or seeing it's not valuable. He's not at all. But he's speaking to this new supernatural reality, this thing that isn't even in existence yet. So in many ways, he's prophesying about what is to come, and he's letting people know that this is a new standard. He foresaw, obviously, the persecution, and that Christians would be driven out of their families, and that they would come together to form new families, and that those people have a family bond that's thicker than just blood, that it was bought with his blood. It's a big, big difference. This is a big concept that's hard to take in on just a Sunday morning in 40 minutes. But Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, speaks about this very concisely. There's a very famous scripture. We don't always understand the full implications of it uh, in light of how it would have played out for the early church. Galatians 3.28 says, and this is the NIV, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is we need to do away 
with these arbitrary cultural divisions, these arbitrary cultural boundaries, this sort of random cultural caste system that's set up to keep people separate. It's very different now because in Jesus, all of those divisions have been done away with. All of those separations have been done away with. You are all now part of one family. And so whether you're a Jew and you were born into it, or whether you're a Greek and you were grafted in, whether you're a slave and you have no money and no social status, or whether you're a free person who owns, you know, all these slaves, it doesn't matter, male or female, which was a radical statement back then, it doesn't matter. We're all part of one big family in Christ Jesus. So here's another truth for you. Spiritual formation, which is what we've talked about at length here, it's the development and becoming more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit uses people. Spiritual formation occurs almost exclusively in the context of community. Almost exclusively in the context of community. You try to live the Christian life with just me, my Jesus, and my Bible, good luck with that. You will get crushed. That's not the way it was ever intended to be. Spiritual formation, discipleship, development, becoming more Christ-like occurs almost exclusively in the context of community. But as the modern cultural norm of radical American individualism extends itself, many Christians grow lax in their accountability, their relational accountability to the church. Now, there are reasons for this, and this is literally an entire other sermon so, and I don't want to go off too long on it, but there are reasons for this, right? A lot of it has to do with the way the church has acquiesced to this modern cultural norm of radical American individualism. A lot of it has to do with that. The result of that is we have unhealthy ecclesiological theology. Now, that's a term you're like, what the heck is he talking about? Basically, we don't understand how the church is really supposed to function, how the church's leadership is really supposed to function, and how those of us who aren't in leadership are supposed to come underneath the leadership and support in certain ways and do certain things, right? That's basically what's happened, and I could offer you lots and lots and lots of proof of that, but what it really comes down to is people come to church, and they, we're going to talk about this in a second, and they, they want something Um, in terms of, I want this, but if you give them something that they need but they don't want, it doesn't go so well. The reason for that has to do with radical American individualism, how the church, again, has bought into that and how we've allowed people to buy into that. Now, that also trickles down into a result, and it's a result of multiple things, including even the way we do church, which I don't have a lot of time to go into today. But here's the reality, okay? Here's the reality, is that oftentimes, like Diamond Dallas Page, here we go, Diamond Dallas Page has more of an ability to like disciple people and train people up and tell them hard things they may not want to hear and have people stick with them than most pastors do. Diamond Dallas Page can do a better job of correcting and teaching and instructing and rebuking people, which is an important part of the church, right, than most pastors can because most of the time, most people in the seats, certainly not any of you, but most people, these other 350-whatever churches, right, don't look at their pastors having any sort of authority or any sort of ability to speak into their life, which is kind of bizarre because you're sitting here listening to me talk for 40 minutes, right? Right? 
It's a little bit strange. It's like, no, I'm cool with the sermon, and I'm cool with the stories you tell and how you always connect them. I like that part, but, like, just let me live my life, bro, you know? Like, don't, don't get too much into my stuff, like, right? I mean, that's personal, right? That's, that's how that works. It gets a little hairy. I'm going to come back to that here just in one minute. Let me transition briefly. There's this truth that the church is a family, and it's not some generic, cliched, like, oh, that's cool, I get that, sounds good. No, no, the church is supposed to be a family. That's what it originally was like for 300 plus years, and only because of some not great cultural trends has, in many, has it many, in many ways devolved to the point where it's not anymore. Acts 4, 34 through 35 shows how tight-knit the early church was, and they weren't perfect. I'm not delusional. They had all kinds of problems. This wasn't some utopian Christian society. It was a hot mess, but in many ways, it was a beautiful hot mess because at least they understood kind of what it was supposed to look like, and they struggled to do that. Acts 44, 34 through 35 says, Now there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And that's a radical picture of family, of family living like a family. And this is the church they were doing this again because people had lost their income source, had lost their livelihood, had lost their, had lost their family bonds and ties that helped provide basic necessities for them. So here's one, I think one last truth. No, I've got one more after this, but next to last truth, right? There is a proclamation of the kingdom of God that emanates from the church that cares for each other like the family that it is. That's a mouthful, but I want you to think about it. There is a proclamation, right? A proclamation. We know what that is. Imagine somebody standing up on a rooftop with a trumpet and announcing, you know, in the old days to like a city, something's going on. There's a proclamation of the kingdom of God that emanates from the church that cares for each other like the family that it is. The proclamation calls out to people to come and taste the gospel. They see the church operating a certain way. They hear about it. And it calls out, and they're like, that's unlike anything I've ever heard. Like, what is that? What has made those people act so differently than the society that we're in? What has made those people act so differently? What has made them have this radical, self-sacrificial love that even goes all the way down to their possessions? Like, I heard my neighbor, I heard they sold their vacation home and gave all the money to a missions group. Like, what's going on with that? Right? There's a proclamation. That's the kingdom of God. That's the upside-down kingdom of God. And it calls out, come and see. Come and see. Only, and this is a big statement, but it is just true. Only in the West is this unclear. Only in the West is this unclear. Only in the West would I even be able to preach this message because most of the places that aren't, they already get this. It wouldn't need to be preached to them. The church, the church in the East, the persecuted church, the underground church, the hidden church, all these places where God is radically on the move, they get this. They get this. Why do they get this? Because there's often, mostly, nothing they can do publicly. They can't market their church. They can't advertise their church. They can't put out whatever, you know, about promoting this event or that event. And I'm not saying those are bad things. They just can't do it right? So what they do instead is they care for each other. And when able to, they care for those outside. And then those on the outside who aren't Christians are attracted to that kind of love. 
There are early historians that were not Christians that have written about the early Christians and how they had this radical love. And there's actually quotes, and I didn't bring any of them this morning, about how weird it seemed. These are non-Christians writing about these people that are Christians. They like, they're just radically, like they love and they give and they serve and sacrifice. And even for people who aren't Christians, and I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. Well, of course it doesn't, right? If you're not a Jesus follower. But when we love radically, and we care for each other, people are naturally attracted to that kind of love. This is so vastly different. This sort of depth of family, depth of relationship, radical, self-sacrificial, giving love, caring for others. This kind of thing is so vastly different from what most churches in the West do, where we hope to attract people with our worship, with our preaching, or whatever other random stuff we might effort toward. Now, I'm all for having great worship, and we do. I'm all for having great preaching, and and we do, uh, humbly, I'd say. I mean, Jordan said you might be bored during my message earlier, so I don't know. But, But here's the thing about those things. Right? The thing about those things is, while we might think that they're okay and they're fine or whatever, those things are, first of all, so incredibly subjective. Can we just admit that? They're so incredibly subjective. Because who defines what good worship is? Who defines what good preaching is? Like, you're bringing so many filters to the table, right? It's so subjective. And because it's so incredibly subjective, it's so incredibly thin, when it comes to establishing familial bonds. Can we agree on that? It's, it's, it's fine, but it's so thin, and we see that all the time, right? In terms of the reality is like, you know, if, if Pastor Jordan and I need to speak into somebody's life, now they've been sitting under our teaching for three years, so we would think, logically, like they probably trust us, and then we speak into their life, and they don't like it. You know what they can do? Just go down the street to another church, right? And so then you're like, well, wait a second. I thought we were tied together through familial bonds, like this tight family, but what were we tied to? I guess you liked, you know, Tim and the worship team, and you liked when, you know, like we preach sometimes or something, or like you, it's just weird. And it's not healthy. It's not what the church is supposed to be like. So here's a, here's a truth. Last one. Thanks for sticking with me. Most of us, strong, this is strong. I hesitated. I couldn't decide if I wanted to put this one up there, but I went with it. So you can forgive me later if you you think it's a little too harsh, because I'm not trying to be harsh. Most of us don't want familial bonds with our church. Notice that that's in quotes. Any more than we want to get in a deep relationship with the person who hands us our food out of the drive-thru window at Bebop's. That person is simply a means to an end. Give me what I ordered, and let me get on with my life. Oh, and if it doesn't taste the way I expect, you'll be hearing about it. I, don't, I hope I made the right decision in keeping that one up. But I'm not trying to, I'm just saying like, we don't think about things that way. We're like, hey, I go to church because of this reason, but like, stay out of my life, stay out of my business. Don't tell me what to do. And that's part of family. It's not the only part, but it's what, a lot of what Paul's talking about here in this text, which is why I'm bringing it up. The church is a family, and the church needs to act like a family. And part of that is correcting, instructing, rebuking each other, sacrificing for each other, certainly, but keeping each other on the straight and narrow. So here's two questions to close out. Number one, and we're going to move through these quickly. 
Number one, if we aren't moving, if we aren't moving towards being more deeply entrenched in each other's lives and looking to challenge each other on levels beyond the superficial, is it even worth the bother? Is it even worth the bother? I didn't get into being a pastor because I wanted to put on cool 90-minute presentations on a Sunday morning. I don't think Jordan did either. Like, I got into being a pastor because I wanted to, like, get after Jesus with a bunch of people who wanted to get after Jesus with me. And we'd go through some stuff, but that we'd keep going, right? If all we're doing is putting on a 90-minute presentation on Sunday mornings and a little thing on Wednesday nights, like, man, I don't even know if that's worth it. But if we're starting to really get after it in each other's lives, and, and then it definitely is. So here's a question for you, the last one. On a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you assign yourself when it comes to New Point being your family? On a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you assign yourself when it comes to New Point Church? And that's the people of New Point Church. Take a look around if you need to. I know there's visitors today. Certainly this doesn't apply to you. But on a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you assign yourself? And I'm not, remember what I said earlier? I'm not talking about, oh, this is my church family. Not your church family in some generic, quasi-spiritual sense. But your family. Like your family, your ride or die, the youth group term, right? The ones you shed blood, sweat, and tears for. What is it? One to ten. Please no one shout it out. <laughs> but, but if you think about it, what is it? So here's the thing, because I want to soften this some. I'm not trying to be harsh. But maybe you've never been told that it's supposed to be like this. And that, I believe, is a very, very strong reality, that you've never been told it's supposed to be like this, or not in any real meaningful way. Maybe you've heard allusions and sermons to the church being a family and the capital C church and all this stuff, but it's never actually played itself out in any meaningful way in the church you are a part of, in this church, in any church for that matter. Maybe you've never been told that it's supposed to be like this, like a family, and that anything short of that is at best a cheap substitute. And at worst, it's simply something that placates a desire in us for some sort of see and be seen social spirituality. Like I go to church and I see people at church and like, that's cool. And I apologize genuinely if this hasn't been communicated to you prior to this morning. Like that it's supposed to look different, that it's supposed to be your family. And I also apologize if you or somebody that's been looking for a family, and we haven't done a good job of bringing you in. That's just least for me. I'm not throwing Jordan to the bus by any stretch. I'm just saying for me. So here's what should you do. What's your role in this? Because there are, is a part that you have to play in this, and it's something that we've talked, I've talked about as pastor for years. It is so important. There's a mutual level of you know, effort that needs to be given. So what should you do if you want the church to be a family? If you don't, I'd ask that you strongly, strongly consider your reasons for coming and think about it and decide if it's worth it. What should you do? Number one, and I, these are so simple, but they are, it still is truth. Number one, show up every week unless you're out of town or ill. Show up every week unless you're out of town or ill. Like, don't, don't just stay home because whatever. Number two, get consistently involved with something outside of Sunday morning. 
consistently involved. I'm not saying, and I, and I don't mean to disparage this at all, because I'm not, but like we announced the YMCA supportive housing. That's a great thing. That's only once a quarter, okay? I'm not talking about something like that. Volunteering for that is great, and you should, but I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting involved in a life group, which I'm in charge of, and you can email me about if you want to be a part of those, and we're going to push those hard in the fall here but getting involved in, a serve, in serving somehow on a consistent basis. Consistent basis. That's important because it starts to frame the church for you outside of the 90-minute Sunday morning presentation. It starts to get to you to see the inner workings and you get to meet different people and actually talk with them at length because most of us get here at like 9.59, right? And that's one minute. It's not a lot of time to get to talk to somebody new, right? Number three is make number one and number two your top priority, period. No excuses. No like, yeah, buts. Show up every week because this is what family does and we're a family on a mission here. And every time we preach, we're trying to further the family. We're trying to deepen the family. We're trying to guide and direct the family. Is this the most effective way to do it? No, but it's a hugely important way that we do it. One-on-one stuff and life groups and those things are where we grow, grow so much deeper, but it's still you've got to get the marching orders and then get involved and don't, don't make excuses. Order your life around the church. Don't see how you can fit the church in around your life. That's not what family would do. That's not how I hope you operate with your family now. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you are... Uh, the creator of the church, that it is your brilliance, your genius that created this thing, that you foresaw um, the need that we would have for a family and a family that is all in service of you and going after you together. I just pray that this church would be known for being a tight-knit family regardless of how big or not big we grow, that it would just become a tight-knit family, that we would see more depth of relationship, that we would see more hunger for discipleship, that we would see more people orienting their life around the church instead of the church around their life. And I just pray that people would catch on, that they would get it. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move right now in people's hearts who have just been kind of on the edges or, you know, on the fringes and have just been like, ah, it's cool, I'll go to church once in a while. I pray that you would just change their heart and establish in them the value and the import of, of the church. That's not through something I can do through my words, but Holy Spirit, just through you moving in power. So we just give that to you right now, Jesus, in your name. Praise you for who you are. Amen.